I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is someone with a really difficult and really important job. You could say that the future prosperity of the insurance market is a big part of his remit. We keep fretting about how hard it is and how it seems to be getting harder still to innovate in our industry and how if we don't do it fast enough, we're going to become irrelevant. Well, Head of Incubation Underwriting at Beasley and co-chair of the Lloyd's Product Launchpad, George Beattie, is both inspiring and eloquent. Listening to him should make you feel a bit more positive about the industry's long-term prospects. The structures he is part of, both within and outside his own organisation, have been designed to make innovation easier by very deliberately removing the disincentives that currently exist for it to happen. After all, who wants to risk their bonus on a new idea that by definition doesn't come with years of claims data or actuarially approved pricing models attached to it? It turns out the problem is absolutely not a lack of original ideas, and far more a lack of time and resource to do all the best ones justice. Listen on for a fascinating episode. George, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks for having me. Tell us all about this product launchpad. How does it work? So the Product Launchpad is built upon the shoulders of success represented by the Product Innovation Facility, which was going for a few years. And the role of the Launchpad essentially is to bring a group of innovators together to do new stuff. And what I mean by that is pooling brain power, diversifying capacity, and ultimately trying to partner with the best in the business, whether it comes to data, other types of technologies that can help us understand, and to get out there and really kind of close the protection gap. And it's a really exciting place to be. It sits quite closely to the lab, which is a brilliant kind of way of of looking at kind of new ideas. And ultimately, we're making real progress in launching things, which is great to have kind of practical examples of innovation actually happening. Its predecessor was called the Product Innovation Facility, Correct. often abbreviated to the PIF. So is there any subtle difference between one and the other? Well, the first thing to think about is that actually the PIF was very successful in bringing people together and looking at ideas. So there's nothing wrong with what the PIF did. And it did launch products as well. And it launched products, which was great. Ultimately, what the launchpad is about is saying, okay, can we simplify the message? And while the PIF was going, the lab grew in emphasis and in gathering good press. So it made a huge amount of sense to say, actually, can we make the launchpad the advisory fuel to the lab? So if that's a great mechanism for getting ideas in, can we not just place the brains in the launchpad alongside the lab, which is the companies coming in to try and do something new? And then just send that message out, which, which becomes a lot easier to understand rather than having a facility floating over here, a lab doing something here, and it all becomes kind of difficult to understand. So it's an effort to refresh and reposition rather than to wholesale reinvent what was happening before. The Lloyd's Market's down to its fourth century of innovating, and it didn't have a launchpad before, and it invented aviation insurance and theft insurance and excessive loss, et cetera, et cetera, over many years. And you know, being a subscription market where brokers come with ideas and try and get them off the ground, why do we need a specific launch pad or something to say with innovation sort of tagged on the top of it to make innovation happen? Yeah, I think it's a really good point. If you look at the legend of Lloyd's that gives us our global reputation, it's about having entrepreneurial people doing things that other markets can't do because of actuarial uncertainty, because it represents a kind of frontier. I think there are a range of structural economic reasons that the market is finding that harder and harder to do. One of the main ones being that the companies that operate in the market are becoming quite siloed, necessarily perhaps, by geography, by product type, and 
by ever more accurate actuarial models that are becoming harder and harder to operate outside of. So ultimately, the fabric that made up the legend of Lloyd's is still there culturally, but I think underwriters find it harder and harder to go outside of their distinct channels. And so the launch pad is an effort to say, how do we get back to that magic that operated at the frontier of the market where we were doing genuinely new stuff in areas where there is significant actuarial uncertainty. We don't have all the ideas, we don't have all the answers, but we have the ability to take correlated information and try and answer a problem for a certain type of buyer. Whether that buyer is new or existing, it doesn't really matter. But it's about getting back and reinforcing that kind of magic that people expect from Lloyd's. So it's almost like deliberately creating places that says, well, it's sort of TBA, to be agreed. We don't know what it is. But is that partly because of regulation and oversight is so much more than it used to be? Back in the old days, you could go and get the active underwriter or somebody. They could do you a favor. They could write a net line on things that they didn't know a huge amount about. And presumably that doesn't happen anymore. I think it probably happens in some places. But if you were to look in a general sense at the buckets that represent the business in Lloyd's, I think that to scale, you need to have consistency and rating models come in. And if you want to scale quickly and safely, it kind of makes sense to have everyone operating in a band that you can define. And so ultimately, I think companies are finding it harder to innovate at the edges because of this kind of siloed approach. So ultimately, I think what it's about doing is it's saying that we don't have all the answers. If we want to remain relevant, there's this whole conversation in conferences that goes on about relevance and how it's diminishing over time and we need to do more things and everything else. But in a practical sense, we need to actually run experiments in a controlled way in order to start to address these new areas. And you don't do that by trying to pigeonhole them into your existing lines of business. It becomes uncomfortable for everybody because people are busy. They have their capacity. They have their budgets. And they've got their bonus structure as well. You know, blow their bonus on some weird thing. Yeah, things like that. The disincentives to breakthrough innovation are many. And I think we've got to look at how do we dissolve those disincentives to do things in a controlled manner and to make sure we can add value and do it safely, but still take calculated bets on new areas that are going to add value to buyers. So it's almost like in a siloed world to innovate, you need almost a silo that says innovate on it. I think so. (laughs) I think there are a number of different strategies and approaches, and I'm not going to say that I know everything about it, but we run a pretty distinct strategy at Beasley, which is to say, let's create a team that does things at the frontier that's empowered to underwrite and to take these calculated bets, and that doesn't go to existing underwriting teams and say, can I have your people? Can I have your capacity? Can I affect your P&L? Can I have your expertise, which may or may not exist in this area? So we're saying, actually, we're going to try and do some of that stuff ourselves. We're going to bring in all the relevant expertise that we can so that you're informed because there are going to be adjacencies where you might have relevant knowledge that doesn't quite fit, but you still want to bring it in. And ultimately, what we deliver back to the business is vetted, articulated propositions that are going to add profit and that haven't hurt anybody along the way. And if they fail because the demand isn't there or because the claims are worse than we expected, we can insulate the business from that in a way within the overall Beasley balance sheet and therefore kind of get from A to B. And so on the practical terms, if I was explaining to someone how this worked, if I said, oh, it's like a Lloyd's Consortium, except it doesn't quite know what it's gone under right yet. It just makes it up as it goes along. Is that fair? Because obviously you've got membership of, correct me by the exact number, but it's about 20 or so of most of the main managing agents, but the larger ones. But is it a consortium that's variable? Presumably not everybody has to do everything or does everyone do everything? It's a really good question. I mean, the first thing to point out is it's not really a consortium. 
Yeah. What it is, is a group of the willing. So these are innovators at their respective companies that are empowered to make decisions or at least to bring opportunities. It's just to- more like a collective that people can opt into different Say, so I quite like this one, but I don't like that one. But you go off and do that one if you want to. Exactly. So one of the things that we wanted to introduce was this idea that people will take different things from breakthrough innovation. And it's okay to follow. Not everyone has to be in the lead designing wordings and rating models. So what we have is a kind of two-speed, which is elective. You can decide to be a lead or a member of the launch pad. And ultimately what that means is that the leads are companies like Beasley that will do the ideation, will design the product, will bring it up to a level where it's presentable. And then we'll take it back into the launch pad and we'll say, okay, we're here to diversify the capacity. Here's everything teed up for you to agree to. And so you can take it to your stakeholders and and get it agreed. And that model works really nicely because what you get then is not innovation by committee, which is almost impossible, but you get ideas coming into the launch pad, certain companies grabbing them because they strike their imagination. And then they take it forward to a point where those that want to can participate in that product or that idea. And that usually takes the form of consortia. Yeah. So we'll put together a capacity formula that, that works. Sort of ad hoc as and when as you need to. As and when. So it's not like everyone in the launch pad is automatically on everything. That's not really the way it works. And actually moving away from the product innovation facility wording has helped with that because when you hear facility, you think facility, whereas actually what it's always been is a group of willing collaborators. A kind of facilitation rather than a facility. Exactly. And you say no underwriting by committee, but when something comes in, do you all get to see it? Or do you sort of say, well, I've got my Beasley ones and then I'll only share them when I need the backup capacity when we need to get more lines behind this? It could work that way. So there are two ways that we kind of look at things. Stuff comes in from the lab where everybody sees it because we provide the advisory kind of insurance fuel to the lab participants. We mentor them, right? So there's visibility there. Ideas might come in from launchpad participants that have baked or half-baked something and get others' views on it. Or something could come in that's fully formed and ready to go where the participants decided, actually, I don't want to take 100% of this. So there are a number of ways things may come in, ultimately. I think one of the problems with Breakthrough Innovation Insurance is we are massively guarded about RIP. And some of that is coming from a good place, a reasonable place, a commercial place. But actually, it's incredibly hard to innovate in this market. We've got lots of these disincentives stacked up against us. So what we're trying to do in the launch pad is in the early stages of getting around a problem to be very free in our thinking and actually articulate and be transparent about what we think that the things are that inform that problem. And then beyond that, when you get into the more sensitive stage where people have taken the mantle of saying, okay, yes, I'm going to take this from A to B, then you can bring in some sensitivity about how you rate it and everything else. But to start with, you have a very broad conversation about what is the nature of the problem How do we get all our collective brains together to figure out if we can do this rationally? And that makes things a bit different. So rather than protecting IP from the very beginning, which is like a problem statement, just get another. You're not protecting IP, you're no one signing NDAs and all this sort of stuff. Not at the beginning stage, no. Because the hope is that if you can drop things into that kind of cauldron of curiosity, so to speak, you actually get much further because you have 25 to 30 brains like yours that can help you shortcut that initial process, which is the most painful because you're trying to get a sense of the size of the market, the nature of the problem you're trying to solve, and other variables that might affect the ability of the product to sell. And actually, there's no reason you shouldn't maximize that brain power to get there. After that point, when you're talking about how to construct the wording and a rating and everything else, these are sensitive artifacts that may well be subject to normal IP protections. But you don't start there because you strangle these ideas before they get a chance to get going. That's really interesting. 
give us an idea of what's the sort of turnover, how many frogs you have to kiss before you, or how many frogs are you out kissing, to use that metaphor, on average? Is it hundreds or just, you know, in tens or? Hundreds of frogs. So I think actually the point is that there is a raging torrent of innovation happening right next to the market. If innovation is a river, it's right there next to us. We're in a sort of island in the middle and we just have to kind of dip our hand in. Our capacity to tolerate that is much lower than the potential, right? And so ultimately, the lab will get in, you know, they do two cohorts a year. They'll get at least 150 applications for each cohort. These are tenable ideas that may work. So actually, that's really good. So these are distinct ideas that we have to then triage. As a Beasley team, we saw over 100 ideas last year, which is our first year of operation. So what we thought we were going to have to be is much more on the front foot around looking for ideas, but ultimately those ideas found us because there's so much demand to get at capacity and to have a partner to work on the problem that our phone was essentially ringing off the hook straight away. And that's not a unique experience. If you have the right interface and you market the capability properly, generally there's an awful lot of opportunity out there. It would be right to describe it as well, dipping your hand out into the world, which is just full of ideas that are dying to come find you anyway. You don't have to ideate these things yourself. Not particularly. So we might have an idea of a theme that we think is interesting and where we'll guide it. For example, digital assets or carbon transition. So there is self-propelled research, if you like, towards areas that we think are interesting. But it's also true that there are an awful lot of partners out there that are potentially not insurance-oriented but where insurance could play a role in what they do. And Gaia, which we launched as a launchpad last month, is an example of that. That's not an insurance business. That's a business that's trying to serve a pressing social problem and where they spotted that insurance could alleviate part of the pain for their target market. And that's one of the reasons I think it works so well. And just for listeners, that's the in vitro fertilization, IVF. Is it right that it's effectively a one-off payment? Because obviously when people go into treatment for IVF. They don't know if it's going to be successful first time or maybe second time or third time. But this applies all statistical, actuarial insurance knowledge and probability. And then you as the insurer take away the risk of them having to stump up a second or a third. And effectively, it's all included in a premium. Taking it from the top, IVF is a very difficult market for people to understand. Very daunting market because it's an expensive process. It's a painful process. It's an emotional process. And so ultimately what Gaia does is it tries to deliver certainty around what the options are for treatment. So where can you get treatment? What types of treatment are available to you? What are your distinct variables about you as a person that might inform the probability of success over a program? A program is a number of rounds, by the way, so you, you can have up to six usually to have a baby. And so what Guy is saying is, okay, let's try and create some transparency around this rather than rolling the dice one time with individual clinics, which is what people tend to do. They save a lump sum and they go off and spend it and they go around the place, which hurts their success chances. You can actually select the clinic based on how good people's experience is there. And that brings a whole air of transparency to this market that you can't find normally. So it's almost like what Checker Trade did to the DIY market, right? Suddenly you have this mechanism for reviewing the service and people's experiences, which people find really valuable. The second piece is accessibility. So what Gaia does is it says, don't worry about saving the lump sum right now, we'll finance this. So ultimately the offer is very simple. If you have a baby through your IVF program, you'll pay an agreed amount per month after you have your baby. If you don't have a baby through your IVF, the insurance simply pays for your incurred treatment fees. So you no longer have liability to pay the financing for a failed process. 
that's very straightforward to understand. You don't have to take the insurance piece if you don't want to, you can just take the financing. And ultimately what this does is it wraps it all together in a kind of community aspect where you can talk to similar people going through similar things. You can talk to nurses and doctors about what's happening. And that's what's so exciting about it. Pressing social need caused by diminishing fertility, particularly in the male population globally. So we're about half as fertile as our grandparents are. And typically this is an issue of male sperm motility. So this is something that in the future, IVF may become the norm. And for young people, particularly under pressure on mortgages, buying a house, the fact that the economics are moving against young people, the ability to look at this in a different pragmatic way is going to make a huge amount of difference. So really there, the insurance is sitting as part of a whole ecosystem and it's just an enabler. I like it does in the whole world economy. It just helps things move around faster. And Exactly. You don't go to Gaia because of Gaia's insurance proposition. You go to Gaia because you want to have a family, you want to have a baby. And the insurance slots in on a voluntary basis and may alleviate the financial pain of the process not working out. And that's really our hope. And from the insurance side, did you have to bring a lot of data there? Do you bring that medical insight or was that more on the Gaia's side where you were just sort of validating that data? Definitely on Gaia's side. Again, where the magic happens, I think, with these insure tech opportunities is, in my view, where they have complete passion for their market and really expert nuanced understanding of the dynamics in play. So they had tapped into 20 or 30 years of fertility data in the UK, and they overlaid their own statistical model that sought higher accuracy than was possible off that data set that exists for everybody to access if you have the right permissions. And that gave us the confidence that we could offer the product that we are, because actually when you get the compounding of probabilities through this number of rounds in a program, you get to see that actually you can rationally offer an insurance product that does this but the calibration has got to be particularly careful to make it work. And so they brought that piece to the table. We bought the insurance knowledge. So here's how you put a wording together. Here's how we think the rating model is going to work. But the statistical science and the passion for the market and the buyer motivation was Gaia's. And that meant that we kind of knew what our role was. But you were able to be comfortable that there was enough third-party data in there that you could validate and stuff you could go and check out. Obviously, Because presumably it's obviously in their interest for them to tell you that it's all going to be wonderful. Completely. And so you have to do diligence. You have to look at the data. And luckily, you know, in the UK, we've got a great medical regulator where you have some sense of trust of the data because it's been vetted by them to start with. And it becomes a question of, okay, do we believe in this algorithm that's taking that data and understanding the probability? And that's ultimately what our diligence process looked like. And what other things have you been cooking up? So we launched a rep risk proposition last year, which is going really well. And ultimately, what that proposition does is it's an all risk solution that pays companies' business interruption. That's and reputational problems. risk. Reputational yep. risk, exactly. Sorry, using shortened terms. And so ultimately, that proposition is about looking at companies that serve consumers and saying, what are the things that can switch people off you and cause your revenue to fall? And that's really, really interesting topic. It's obviously an intangible asset that sits across every company's balance sheet. And we're having really interesting value-added conversations with companies doing that. Development-wise, really crypto and carbon taking up a lot of time sort of looking at how can we offer the market's existing propositions in the crypto universe in a reasonable way and to add value there and then potentially get to more breakthrough products later on where you might be using smart contracts and things. Yeah, I had a very interesting podcast with Realm Insurance recently. Again, you know, we were talking about denominating limits and, and taking premiums in crypto and obviously having crypto on a rated balance sheet, which is the real world first there. Fascinating stuff. I presume that we're talking about a multi-trillion dollar universe there that 
really is not getting a huge amount of insurance at the moment. And I've said this at different events. I've said, I think we need to be very careful that we don't ignore where the action is. And I think that a huge amount of wealth, jobs, value is being created in that industry. There are teething pains around regulation and growing legitimacy like any disruptive new industry. But I think we don't win any points by just ignoring it. You know, you could argue, well, we can follow up later on when it's kind of all played itself out. But I think we need to be better than that. And I'm not saying let's just go out and write it all because that's the innovative thing to do. However, if you really take the time to understand it to begin with, I think that's a good starting place. So rather than buying into the frankly prejudicial position that a lot of commentators have on the space, how about actually digging into how it works? What is this technology? What are these companies facing? Because when you talk to the companies, they're not looking for radical products. They're looking to buy DNO. They're looking to buy cyber because they want to be treated like normal companies. So is what these companies are doing so radically different that we can't cater for them at all? Are we comfortable with that position? So I think that's what it comes down to. Innovation can take a number of forms. With that space, I think it starts off with offering conventional products for an unconventional space. Okay, that's the foundation. Later on, we can start to get into that protection gap, which is actually can we use smart contracts based on some of these technologies to deliver faster indemnity, those kinds of things. But you don't have to start there to add value. I think it's great that there are entities thinking about denominating reserves in crypto. However, the asset price volatility is going to be the thing that causes people concern. And I don't think it's necessary to go there straight away. I think that these companies will be happy getting paid in fiat currency. I suppose if you just want DNO so you can get a 30-year career banker onto your board to give you some kind of legitimacy as you're raising funds or maybe even IPOing, then that's, that's enough, isn't it? It may come down to that. <laughs> I, you know, I, honestly, I think these companies are just looking for someone to talk to them. Whether or not we get out there and we write all of this business, I think we need to do a little bit better at actually just interacting with these companies and giving them the respect of hearing them out about what they do. And we're making an effort at Beasley and within the Launchpad to do that and to just take a very reasonable approach to saying, actually, let's just understand this to begin with and then make a decision. You mentioned carbon, so probably more correctly, decarbonizing or this 2030-year process of decarbonizing the world economy that we're on. Where are the biggest interests? Where's the biggest interest? Obviously, you know, ESG has really exploded in the last 18 months as a three-letter abbreviation. Where do you think there are going to be business opportunities or when you're dipping your hand in that pond outside Lime Street, where are the best ideas, do you think? It's really hard because there's so much conversation in ESG and a lot of it is about reinforcing carbon transition with what we currently do and acknowledging the role that insurance has to play in helping companies to do that. And Beasley has a few initiatives that have been pretty well covered. My concentration on this is really more about the protection gap posed by carbon. So that could be new technologies that pose new liability risks or new property risks, but it could also be around perils that might affect a company's ability to transition properly. So if you look at a company's emissions and you look at the things that can affect that, like Suez being shut down, causing ships to reroute around the Horn of Africa, for example. Can we start to move into a position where we have a way of catering for those unforeseen events and how that affects emissions and therefore what the economic connotation of that is? Because typically companies have to go out and buy offsets and credits and there are implications to not hitting their targets. There's something in that that I think is quite interesting as a means of the insurance market stepping in. And so I suppose what I'm trying to say is, it's much harder to spot where the breakout innovations are 
in the ESG space because there's so much noise in general in the area. And again, I think if you're being practical about it, it comes down to, are we doing everything we can with what we currently have to support this global requirement, right? Make sure we're doing the right thing. And then can we pick out the distinct opportunities that might represent new products that we can then go after? Because you're not going to get an ESG insurance product. It doesn't make sense. There are too many moving parts. So we've got to boil it down to digestible pockets and then go out there to the market and say, this is something that's going to cater for this portion of your risk. And here are another five to 10 products that do different things. That I think is the most reasonable way to digest it. And obviously you've got the Launchpad guys, but also the product innovation facility guys. You've had products that are now, let's say they're not mature, but they've been out for a while. What's the sort of rate card on some of those that have been out there for a bit and any of the learnings from that? Yes, there have been some real successes, right? And brands that people recognize just in terms of what they see in the media. So Flood Flash, Parametrics, you know, are two examples of entities that came through the lab and were advised by Launchpad members, backed by Launchpad members, and that are going from strength to strength. Both of those happen to be parametric, actually, going after distinct markets. So Flood Flash is what it says on the tin. It's going after flood risk and has a very practical way of applying parametric technology to the problem, which is... You have these kind of tubes with a ping pong ball inside. And when it goes above a certain level, it fires off an automated payment, which is wonderful, right? Because it's easy to understand. And then parametrics is going after a market that is harder intellectually to understand, but is pressing, which is cloud downtime and how that affects different businesses. So these are companies that are writing more and more premium, that are successful in their own right. They're not experiments. And they grew out of this environment and gained a lot from the things we're talking about, lab, launchpad, intellectual capacity, the lab environment to test out their ideas. And without those two things, those entities wouldn't have been as successful and would have found it much harder to get capacity and get going. So going back to your point around why do we need this? We've been going for 300 years. The successes define why it's necessary, I think. Obviously, you know, it's a fast fail environment. It's a popular way of describing this thing. So anything that didn't work out as well? I think that a rational kind of incubation process, you tend to fail things in the ideation and diligence phase. What is your sort of hit rate out of 100? How many tend to make it to the big launch day? So I'm going to be honest, it's not a sort of formula I thought about too much, but I would say that you would boil that 100 down to six practical things that'll go into your process, which means you're involving different people in building the rating and other things. Generally, where you get to the phase where you're building a wording, so a way of capturing the product identity, and you're thinking about bringing an actuarial resource, you're fairly sure this is something that you want to happen. Most of these things will fail because the platform is not strong enough to sell it. So the thing that keeps me up at night, frankly, is coming up with really clever insurance products that insurance people love and that no one wants to buy. (laughs) It's possible to do. But what is the sort of success rate of things that come through the door that then go to market? I would say about 2%. And part of that is not because there's only 2% of stuff that's going to work out as rational, but you're going through a kind of filtration process that is well-intentioned bureaucracy, process and time and people and everything else. So ultimately what you end up with is the 2% that get through, but it might be that 10% of those were rational. It's just, there's no practical way of executing them because we've only got so many hours in the day. So it's a form of break. I'd just say, obviously it's all about great distribution. If you can't sell it, you can't have it. Yeah. No income. And you've got to prioritize, right? So you might have 10 great products, but the thing that is really hard about this job, frankly, is not separating bad from good, but separating good from great. 
So you could launch a lot of stuff that is successful because it sells and it adds some value, but you might be missing the thing that really turbocharges and becomes the next cyber. Something that can eat you up if you spend too much time on it, because ultimately you have to make decisions with the information given to you. But that is the nuance that I think is hard to kind of get So you skewed more towards finding moonshot type businesses then? Well, arguably, the role of my team at Beasley is to concentrate on stuff that you would define as breakthrough. So the market hasn't seen it before, because the fundamental calculation is that there are different forms of innovation. Incremental innovation, where you're using technology to distribute something better or to understand something better, has to happen. Does it require specific resource to go out there and act as entrepreneurially as you need to to go after the breakthrough stuff? No. I think a lot of innovation has to be dealt with by line teams in an existing business, whether it's the talent department, whether it's your technology department. A lot of that can be hoovered up quite successfully in those areas. Going for the breakthroughs requires a tolerance for risk and a will to invest in people where success might look slightly different to what you're used to. But of ones that were launched that may not be going now, I remember one that was a hotel occupancy rate and it was parametric based on occupancy rates that are probably measurable. Is that one still going? I think it is. So I've got to be careful on this one because it wasn't something that I specifically I just presume did. it had a difficult pandemic, shall we say. Yeah, I think ultimately there are things that can come along in relation to occupancy that are black swans and that may have been one of them, right? The, the challenge with products like that, where you have quite sophisticated buyers and quite sophisticated data sets, is that you engage in quite a prolonged sales cycle where ultimately the decision to buy is probably the product of a few years of discussion rather than one especially in a hard market dynamic where a risk manager is going to their board and saying, hey, here's a thing you've never heard of, but we definitely need it. And by the way, it costs half a million dollars. It's a really hard sell. So the broking market thinks of its job is really hard, but there is an onward conversation in these companies that is particularly tough as well. So ultimately, it comes down to what's the ticket price of this item? And is there enough buyer urgency to drive the volume you need to make it a thing? Now, the early cyber market had the same dynamic where the product was perfectly rational. Everyone knew that it's a sensible thing to have, but it wasn't until cyber cases started ticking up that you had that burning platform that drove the demand. And so to an extent, a lot of innovative products are waiting for that proof point, which is, are there enough examples of this happening to drive buyers to get it on their own volition rather than being educated and then buying it? Because if you have to educate and then buy, it is going to put a limit on how much you can sell. And I think there needs to be more realism about what that looks like when you're looking at a product idea. So it's a bit like life insurance purchase around the world after the Spanish flu in 1918 or whatever it was, 1919, 1920, the record years for life insurance sales, I think. And then that really kicked the whole thing off, you know. Because it becomes real to people. One of the things I think is very clear is that although we love insurance and we live insurance, and I don't know how that happened, I never dreamt of going into insurance, but here I am. Insurance is fundamentally a need and not a want. It's not a new iPhone. So we can't sell it as a desirable item that's going to really excite people in that way, right? What we're here to do is alleviate pain and to make stuff happen. But we shouldn't be under any illusion that we're going to get in the way and it's, it's a shiny new sort of technology thing that, that people want. Again, taking it back to Gaia, great example. People are going to Gaia because they want to have a child. There are things about the insurance component that alleviate some of the risks in that. And that's ideal because you don't have to educate them on the value of it because they understand the risks already and you're just slotting something into the right place at the right time that they can either switch on or switch off. You know, that's a great example of where we have to get to, I think. Yeah, I'd like to ask you a sort of fundamental question about innovation. 
when you go into work every day, do you have a sort of toolkit or a methodology in the way that like a rating agency has a way of doing things? Are there certain elements that you're looking for to say, well, if we don't have these, it can't work, or you do things in a certain order or something? Do you have a sort of toolbox that you get out and go, does this work? Or a couple of boxes you need to tick before you get to the next stage? Yeah, we do. So we have a sort of tool that we use really high level just to kind of rate incoming inquiries, and it captures quite broad categories, if you like. And we kind of have a points-based system out of 12 that defines, you know, that we think this is really exciting. And they're things like buyer urgency. So how much of an economic problem is this for the target demographic that we're looking at, companies or individuals or whatever it might be? The other pieces are things that VCs would look at. So what's the addressable market? What's the practicality of selling this? Is there technology required that hasn't been invented to make it happen? And so we have that kind of process just for curating a short list of ones that we think have the right balance. So it kind of helps winnow out the 100 down to the 20 they're actually really, you're going to spend some proper time on. Yeah. And like I said, I think the majority of time they fail immediately. It's because we don't see the buyer urgency. That's genuinely the first place I think we start out at. And it is that stalking horse of this product might be really smart. It might have all the right data and all the right logic, but we really believe someone's going to pay the value that we need them to pay in order to make a profit in it. And you can usually very quickly see ones that aren't going to work for that reason. And so I'd say 80, 90% of the fails get weeded out for that reason. So George, your day job is at Beasley, running the incubation underwriting team. Can you explain the sort of split in labor between the launch pad and that, and then obviously go into a bit about what the Beasley specific part is? Sure. So these are very complementary things, because fundamentally, the launch pad is about pooling resources and actually accentuating what we currently do in the team. So I'd say in terms of time, I probably spend 5% or less of my time on launchpad related activities because it feels like it's in the direction that I'm working anyway, day to day. So the function of the incubation team at Beasley is to discover, develop, launch and underwrite brand new propositions. And generally, I see there being two verticals for that work. The first one is we create first party branded Beasley products that say Beasley on the tin and we underwrite them and they're typically intermediated by brokers. The second vertical is more of a nuanced one which is we match the passion of companies looking to do insure tech by offering them strategy, market fit, but critically wording and actuarial support to make their vision real. Like Gaia, like others we have in the pipeline. So those two verticals kind of keep us busy. The challenge being they're both quite different. So ultimately what it means is we do a mix of specialty programs, if you like, on a delegated basis and things we trade ourselves to brokers. Right. Something I should have asked is, is there any kind of exit plan for these products once they go into this launch pad? At what point do they cease to become launch pad things? You just wave them goodbye and they're in the stratosphere. Well, I suppose they're always launch pad alumnus, if you like. But I would say that immediately as they go into the pilot phase, which is normally defined by the lead, they become a product that, that is being operated by that company. And it becomes less about the launch pad. Your job is to get them up into the stratosphere and right. I hope they don't fall down to earth too quickly. Right. So if I look at it from the Beasley perspective, we're quite a small team. So actually over time, you might end up with a huge amount of business to manage, which you can't do. So the aim for us is to say, okay, controlled experiment complete. We can see this has legs. It's going to turn a profit. And what you actually get is underwriting teams in the business who want those ideas because they can see that the hard edges have been knocked off. And it means that ultimately those teams can run those long term. So, well, yeah, this could end up as a marine product. So Marine might as well run it. So we have sponsors, right, where if it's most aligned to Marine, we'll get them along and we'll say, hey, this is something we're going to 
incubate and then down the line you're going to take it on if it's successful and if they Gaia want is sort of life and health but a sort of contingency version of life and health exactly so it's not a direct fit but it'll probably fit within our political accident contingency division yeah it's, you certainly don't look upon the launchpad as being, you don't sort of say, well, this is like a startup insurance company with its own balance sheet and its P&L. No. You don't ever think of it like that. You don't no. say, what's my GWP production this year? You just go, how many launches have I done? Are any the, good? The, the launchpad is a golden fleece, right? It's something that we wear fairly lightly and it complements the work that we do because everyone's pulling in the same direction. And ultimately, when you get people together with the right spirit of cooperation and curiosity and trying to do things differently, Genuinely, some really interesting stuff happens, is happening. And yeah, I think it's a really exciting place to be. And what we're getting is a lot of demand from Lloyd's managing agents who are coming in. So most recently, Arc and Mosaic are coming into the group, which is great. And we're also looking at non-Lloyd's complementary entities, so reinsurers that have brains to add. So I think in time, you have a commonality between these people, which is we want stuff to change. We want to do new product. We don't want to be bound by tradition that is not useful. And forward progress will be defined by launches and by the success of those launches. And I think Launchpad has hit the ground running, builds off a pretty good foundation, which is the product innovation facility, and we'll see where it goes next. Well, George, I think I've come to the end of my questions. I think this is a really good start. We could go on forever, but I don't think we should do that because I think we sort of whetted everyone's appetite. I think everyone knows shouldn't be in any doubt what this is all about. And I think obviously the possibilities are fairly endless. And I think it's the sort of thing we should be talking about regularly. So thanks very much for coming on the show. And I'll hold you to coming back again at some point in the future and give us an update on all the other launches and exciting things you've got up to in, in the meantime. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.